Welcome everyone. Greetings. Um, happy Valentine's Day to those of us who celebrate it. My name is Patwin and I am the founder and co-leader of the All for One Kinship here on Crick Hollow. Our membership is a very diverse group of age and nationality and we do enjoy wide content, gameplay, and lore in the game. Great people with a common goal of having fun in Middle Earth in the spirit of fellowship. Um, our kinship originated on Rittermark in 2012 and we moved to Crick Hollow in 2015 and we've been going ever since. Um, a group of my kinmates are forming the Middle Earth Leveling Club, a server-wide opportunity for people to group together to do on-level activities starting at level 40. Your kin membership is not required in All for One, so you're encouraged if you're interested to uh, let me know and I'll put you in touch with those who are starting that club. I do hope everyone enjoyed the refreshments. Thank you to all my friends in All for One for their help with hosting this evening's class. And thank you to Maven for the honor of participating this evening as host. It's an honor to welcome Professor Corey from the Mythgard Institute and for his second visit to Crick Hollow for this evening's class in the series of Exploring Lord of the Rings in our beautiful lore hall here in Bree. Welcome, Dr. Olson. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you for the introduction. Thank you for hosting us here uh, and joining us. Good to be back on Crick Hollow here with everybody this evening. And uh, I look forward to continuing our Exploring the, the Lord of the Rings quest. So today uh, we are going, uh, st still in chapter two. Uh, today is the seventh overall class um, in this in in the series, and it is the um, uh, our fourth class in uh, in chapter two. My goal originally had been to do chapter two in four classes, but I no longer suspect that I'm going to be able to do that. In fact, I'm really pretty sure I'm not. Uh, I'm now definitely planning five classes on chapter two. We have one more after tonight, and that's if all goes well. So we'll see. We'll see how that how that how that goes. Um, I just wanted to remind everybody: um, if you want to participate in text chat during the class, uh, to come to our Discord channel, the link should be posted there on Twitch. Again, if you want to just listen on Twitch, you'll be able to listen and follow along just fine, uh, and you can chat with the good folks there in the Twitch chat. Uh, if you would like to uh, to answer questions and to uh, uh, write things so that I can uh, promise to see them uh, during class then you can uh, go to our Discord chat uh, room and post things there. So uh, I should be able to, should be able to, 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 to get all that stuff there. So, all right, tonight we are going back. We, we, so we left off, remember last time we spent almost all of our time looking at the story of Gollum and um, Tolkien's, or Gandalf's rather, introduction of that story. We were focusing on how remarkably detailed the story was, how he didn't just say, hey, I can fill in the backstory on Gollum, I can tell you how Gollum found the ring. Really, um, really, in essence, that is the, uh, um, the whole point of it, right? I mean, Gandalf could have just told the crucial fact very, very briefly, right? He could have just said, okay, so, it's, you know, he, he had gotten as far as Isildur dying in the river, right, and losing the ring, um, and he said at this point, you know, this is where it falls out of the knowledge of the wise, and um, um, and it's 
you know, and then he says, I think I can carry on the story, right? He could have done that in a couple sentences, right? He could have just said, so yeah, you know, uh, 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 so it turns out, you know, I, a hobbit or hobbit-like guy found the ring, took it, went into the Misty Mountains, hid there for 500 years, and then Bilbo met him later, and it's Gollum, wow, right? I mean, that's the missing link, right? And that's the substance, of the you know sort of the plot substance that Gandalf had to convey, but it's very clear from the beginning of Gandalf's story of Gollum that Gandalf is interested in a great deal more than just the mere simple fact, right, of making that link in the story of the Ring between Isildur and Bilbo, which of course is 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 Gollum. So why you know what was he primarily interested in? Why was he telling the story in that way? Why was he? Um, why was he focused on giving all that detail and all that back of the whole character sketch of Gollum? Remember we were looking at that and, you know, him digging under plants and diving into deep pools and all those sorts of things. Um, and I think it's fairly clear. He wants Frodo to think about this, right? He wants Frodo to think about Gollum and about what makes Gollum, what made Gollum the way that he is. And of course, especially, he's thinking about Gollum's relationship with the ring and how Gollum's re- relationship with the ring was uh, 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 predetermined in part by Gollum's own personality. Um, anyway, so we will, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll carry on. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, Bialver says, uh, Smeagol's interest in roots and beginnings, as Gandalf says, is that Tolkien making fun of his own profession? Uh, of course, uh, uh, roots especially, of course. I, I, I'm not sure if he was just thinking about philology there, but um, the one thing I would say is that uh, Gandalf is obviously doesn't mean that as a slight, right? I mean, uh, you know, in essence, the kind of intellectual curiosity that Smeagol shows is not a bad thing at all, right? In fact, if you think about it, it's the one thing that makes Gollum like... Um, in many ways, Gollum is a very small character, right? I mean, he's not one of the great villains, you know, in the history of Middle-earth. Um, and, you know, one of the main patterns that we can see in Tolkien's world is that those who become the great villains, those who do the worst and most horrible things, are those who are greatest to begin with, right? The, the, those who are, who are high fall lowest. And in particular, those who are uh, the most, uh, the most subcreative, right? The most artistic, uh, the, gr- the greatest makers, they're the ones who, uh, who tend to uh, fall, most often, right? We see that with, uh, we see that with Melkor, we see it with Sauron, we see it with Feanor, we see it with Saruman, right? Um, lots of times, people who like sort of that kind of, uh, that kind of, um, of person is are the ones who who tend to fall most spectacularly in Tolkien. Gollum is not, you know, he's not one of those high-profile fallen characters, but he is. Um, he does share one thing in common, that, 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 that desire to know, right? That seeking after knowledge, um, which is kind of like the Noldor in the Silmaril, in the Silmarillion, right? So um, it, it's small scale, right? But uh, that kind of curiosity that Smeagol had, which is not a bad thing, in essence. So, Bialvary, I don't think that he's, um, you know, the, the kind of similarity to the work that Tolkien does himself in philology, I think shows he's not trying to say this is a horrible thing. Um, you know, is there kind of an inside joke, especially with roots, right? He's interested in roots and beginnings. Uh, 
it's hard for me to imagine that Tolkien wasn't kind of smiling to himself, right? I mean, certainly he and other philologists would hear that phrase, roots and beginnings, in a in a different way, right, than, than a lot of other people would. Um, but uh, but it's all good. And uh, Matthew, you're right, Gollum does go off by himself, like Melkor and Feanor and Saruman do. Yes, you're right. There are, there are, there are some other... Uh, um, there are some other uh, uh, similarities there, too. And James, great point. James Stevens points out that, of course, Gollum may not be one of the great villains, right? He might not be on a par with Sauron and Feanor and those others. Um, but, uh, of course, he's another example about how, you know, a very small person can have a profound effect uh, upon the world. Except, of course, in Gollum's case, for ill, mostly, instead of for good. But, you know, of course, we'll get around to all that stuff in the end. Um all right, but was he poking fun at himself? I mean, I don't know, poking fun, I mean, it's kind of an inside joke, right? I mean, I think he's having fun with it a little bit. I don't know. I mean, I don't think we can prove that it's definitely, he definitely had, you know, philology in mind when he was doing that. But again, it's it's hard for me to imagine the phrase roots and beginnings wouldn't have a particular resonance there, but... I'm just not willing to go quite that strong because that kind of gets into, you know, trying to guess what was in his mind and what he intended by it. And that's always just kind of guesswork. And I always try to prefer not to do that. Um, okay. So, uh, anyway, uh, let's, um, let's, let's carry on. So I, I want to do, as I always do, I wanted to start off with a few questions from the discussion board. So again, especially for those of you who are watching and listening asynchronously, um, there is a discussion board where you can post questions uh, and, uh, uh, and observations. Lots of really great stuff has been uh, coming in there. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've been really, really pleased. Uh, and some of your questions I've skipped and it's because I'm saving them uh, because we haven't gotten around to them yet. Um, but uh, uh, but anyway, we, we will I we, we will we will we will try to get there. So let me begin. Are the, the topic of today's class? The title of today's class is Frodo's first trial. We're going to be looking at Frodo under pressure for the first time. The first time we see Frodo reacting to adversity, we will see Frodo reacting to adversity many times. Right? Um, when Frodo reacts to adversity this time, what's his starting point? Right? What do we see uh, in Frodo under pressure? Uh, which I think is is a really interesting sort of thing. But first, uh, let's do notes and queries. So, okay, Matt DeForest says, Last class we got to hear the One Ring poem and the two authorial voices, the elf loremaster and Sauron, as I was arguing. I wonder about the third voice, the poem's translator. Is it Gandalf, who gets the rhythm of the black speech right? Or can we ascribe it to Bilbo, who translated much from the elves? Great question. Of course, we don't know for sure uh, who translated that into the common speech, because we are getting it in the common speech. And of course, since not only, of course, does Gandalf explicitly say that he's translating um, the lines, right, the one ring to rule them all lines from the black speech. Um, so he does kind of take credit for the black speech translation, right? But then again... Uh, he says, you know, this is a verse long, it's part of a verse long known in elven lore, and then he proceeds to say it in the common tongue. So that is, of course, presumably translated. Um, my guess is that it's Gandalf's translation, um, not Bilbo's, mostly because he does seem to take credit for that translation from the black speech of those two lines. And since those two lines are the same in the poem that he does, I think he's translating, perhaps extemporaneously. That is a thing that happens quite a bit. Like, 
Aragorn is presume is you know claims to be translating extemporaneously when he does the Baron and Luthien poem at Weathertop. So um, anyway, there's there's there, there's a lot of that kind of thing. I mean, of course, Bilbo would be the other candidate because he did translate much from the elves. But I I kind of have to think. I'm not sure they gave him that one, <laughs> right? I mean, that's, uh, I'm not sure that's his. Uh, but anyway, I, I think that, um, my, if I had to guess, my guess would be that Gandalf was translating it on the spot, basically. Um, uh, cool. Okay, uh, let's, uh, okay, next one. Uh, uh, Lincoln Alpern was taking me to task. Uh uh, and he was taking me to task for being too flippant, uh, which is which is which is perfectly perfectly uh, uh, a perfectly just and right thing to do. Lincoln, Lincoln was taking me to task for being too flippant with that line um, uh, about how the last alliance was not wholly vain, and I was sort of joking that it was it was kind of um, faint praise uh, from Gandalf there, um, and uh, too different people reacted to this and I, I wanted to do, I wanted to do both of those. I know Lincoln, you had mentioned, I cut off some of your comments just because I, I needed to fit it on the slide. Um, but I know you, Lincoln was just saying that, you know, he's not criticizing my flippancy in general. Uh, but, um, but thought I was, I went, um, I went too flippant too quickly on this one. Um, and I think I agree with you in part, but anyway, I'll read, read some here of what you said. We live in a world whose history is littered with examples of people struggling with great valor and heroism to achieve some great good or to avert some great wrong. Uh, And I just want to give specific examples. Only to have their struggle end in loss, tragedy, and suffering. When I contemplate these sorrowful events and something similar which happened on a small scale in my own community, I find comfort in the idea that these heroic struggles were not wholly vain, that they produced some measure of good even though they did not achieve their end. Absolutely true. And I certainly don't mean and didn't mean uh, to devalue the seriousness of that, right? I mean, it is clearly um, an important thing, right? It is, it is clearly important to, to think of things in, the, in those terms, like to say that even when something appears to be a failure, it's not wholly vain. The thing that strikes me about the way that Gandalf says, delivers that line in that context is that it's not obvious that he's talking about a f- like so okay let me see if i can try to get at what exactly i'm trying to 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 put my finger on here imagine two different scenarios right one which is obviously a failure like a a, a great thing is attempted and it doesn't pan out Right, it just they don't achieve the goal. They, f- they 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 fall short of the goal that they were shooting for. And another thing, which succeeds, you know, maybe not like permanently, maybe not ultimately, but it's still everyone would agree the thing is a is a is a, is a pretty good success, right? Um, and uh, if you say of the first, right, the thing which everyone agrees failed, right? Nobly failed, right? It was a great effort, heroic effort and everything, but it didn't do what it was trying to do. If you say of that, but it wasn't wholly vain, right? You're clearly saying, Lincoln, what you're getting at here, right? The problem I have is that the last alliance, 
doesn't look like that. I say that carefully, doesn't look like that. I understand that, especially from the Elvish point of view, the Last Alliance was a failure, right? They set out with the Last Alliance to destroy Sauron for good and all, right? They wanted to vanquish Sauron so that he would never rise again, and they wanted to, they wanted to solve the Sauron problem forever. They failed to do that, right? So from a really big picture viewpoint, like from the Elvish long-term viewpoint, you could start off with the premise the last alliance was a failure, right? They didn't get rid of Sauron. We're still now at the end of the Third Age in the same fix we were at the end of the Second Age, right? And from that point of view, if you begin with the premise that the last alliance failed, then saying these deeds were not wholly vain, again, it's your saying exactly that, you know, uh, Lincoln, clearly what you were saying about it. The problem that I have is that it doesn't seem that way, especially not based on the context in which we are introduced to it in this conversation, right? Um, When Elrond is going to introduce it again in the Council of Elrond, I think it's going to sound different coming from him. But when Gandalf... Remember, the thing that I was emphasizing last time, the thing I find most striking, is what a shocking success the Last Alliance is, right? I mean, the shocking... I remember Frodo asks the question, as we were looking at last time, the, the beginning of the section that we did last class, Frodo starts off by asking the very sensible question, how the heck did he lose the One Ring, right? I mean, if it was so precious to him, right? If it was the most important thing to him, and he was so powerful, how did he lose it, right? It doesn't make sense. And the answer, as Gandalf says, is... I, no, it was taken from him, right? He was defeated by the Last Alliance, right? The Last Alliance works. It succeeded. I mean, again, like, again, the elves might say, well, you know, long term, here we are 3,000 years later and back in the same fix. But ask the people of Gondor, right? Ask the people of Minas Tirith in, like, year 20 of the, first, of the Third Age, whether or not they thought the Last Alliance was a success, and I bet you they're going to give it two thumbs up. Right? I mean, true, Elendil died, Isildur died not too long after. That was sad and everything, but you know what? At the end of the day, this all panned out pretty well, right? And for quite a long time, many, many, many generations of people. So to everybody else in Middle-earth, apart from, you know, the elves and the wizards who are looking at the really, really big picture... The Last Alliance looks like not only a, 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 a big success, but a shocking success. Right? I mean, I, who would have thought that it would even be possible uh, to do that? So, again, and I'm not arguing. I'm not trying to argue that the elves are wrong and it really was a success. I totally get it. But what I'm saying is the way that Gandalf... And this is why that note from Gandalf, the not wholly vain comment, strikes me so oddly uh, in that paragraph. Because Gandalf's emphasis, big picture, seems to be on, again, the shocking success of the Last Alliance. And then he follows that up with saying, yeah, you know, it'd be good for us to remember that. Because back then there were great deeds that were not wholly vain. It's like, well, okay, yeah. I guess you, I mean, that's why it sounds like, gosh, Gandalf, you've got a... uh, pretty darn high standard for like not like the I mean they beat down Sauron to his face and took his ring off his hand like that's pretty not vain like that's that was 
Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on and and. Baldwin, yes, you are right. So I'm going to go on to my next comment because my next comment is even longer on the same subject uh, and uh, does a, does a great job. So let's look at this. Uh, this is from Jonathan Cassells, uh, who made a wonderful point. And this was another one that I had to kind of compress and I cut out some bits in the middle. Um, but I loved the um, um, uh, yeah. I thought that was you, Baldwin. Um, yeah, this is great. And, uh, and, uh, 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 Jonathan, the greatest thing here, I love the close reading that you're doing here. It's just absolutely warms my heart. So I wanted to include every bit of it, but I, 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 I did as much as I could to fit on the slide. That is it. So he quotes, that is a chapter of ancient history, which it might be good to recall for there was sorrow then too, and gathering dark, but great valor and great deeds that were not wholly vain. In my reading, he says, I seem to take it for granted that it would be good to recall this victory because it provides hope that Sauron can be defeated. But I note that's not the reason given in the text. The first reasons Gandalf gives us directly for why this is worth remembering are for there was sorrow then too and gathering dark. Only after he's mentioned those does he mention great valor and great deeds. He clearly views those as a secondary reason, which is emphasized by the fact that they are only included after the conjunction but... Right, there was sorrow then and gathering dark, but great valor and great deeds. In fact, an extremist interpretation could be that he views valor and great deeds as a counter-argument to his reasons for remembering the story. True, I don't think I would go that far either, but I see what you mean. I know this seems to oppose the reasons why we might expect it to be important to remember in this chapter, but if Tolkien had wanted to emphasize the great valor and great deeds, he could easily have phrased it in a way which made that clear. And here's where I had to cut a bit, uh, where Jonathan was sort of pointing out how, uh, if had it been phrased differently, uh, foregrounding the great valor and great deeds, uh, bringing that in first instead of the sorrow and the gathering dark, it would come across very differently. But the fact that he doesn't do that and puts sorrow first seems intentional and important. I'm not sure why he would choose this emphasis, except that we later hear Aragorn tell stories to the hobbits in order to buoy their spirits, and he chooses sad stories. In fact, he takes stories which, when you read them in the Silmarillion, don't have sad endings, but makes them sad. This makes me wonder if, in The Lord of the Rings, or perhaps in Tolkien's personal philosophy, stories of sorrow have power, if they make the listener stronger, and if Gandalf's reason for saying it would be good to recall this uh, is, the, is, is uh, to recall is this reason above all others. To me, this makes more sense than recalling it for the sake of proof that Sauron can be cast down by might of arms, because that approach was mostly vain. But he must already know that it won't work now, so it's not like he's trying to present a blueprint for what must now be done. Yes, yes. Okay, a couple things I would say to this, Jonathan. First of all, I do agree with the premise about stories of sorrow having power um, through the very sorrow of those stories themselves. And we will definitely talk about this more when we get to Weathertop. Right, that because I agree with you. That is the moment um, where that seems to me to be foregrounded primarily. Um, uh, that to me is the best example of that uh, in all of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, so we'll definitely talk about that when we get there. You know, um, like probably mm, by Christmas. But anyhow, um, so yeah, so we'll, we'll. I do, as I say, I do agree with that premise. But there are two things that I would say here. First of all. Uh, let me start with the last point that you make. No, I don't think that if we... So, first of all, if we did interpret it as Gandalf saying, sort of wanting to emphasize the great valor and great deeds, right? Even if we did read it that way, 
it, it, that wouldn't have to be Gandalf presenting as a blueprint, right? He doesn't have to be like, hey, remember the last alliance? We beat Sauron before. Doggone it. We can do it again. Let's, let's like pony up everybody. Like, uh, th- obviously that's not what Gandalf's saying, right? Um, but uh, I do think that it is certainly, it does present itself as a reason. Remember, Frodo has just said like, you know, how did he come to lose it since it was so precious, since he was so very strong and, and it was so precious to him, right? Um, he's emphasizing, like, how how could anyone do anything? Like, how is it that things didn't go, you know, the Dark Lord's way the first time, right? And the answer is because he was opposed and the opposition worked. Didn't achieve all of its goals, but it worked, right? He was, Sauron was overthrown last time. So there is, I mean, I feel inevitably there is there is an element, at least, I think you must concede at least an element of buck up, little camper, it's not as hopeless as it looks, right? Sauron might seem, um, Sauron might seem completely, like, omnipotent from where you're sitting, right? But he's not omnipotent. He's beatable and he's been beaten before, so trying to resist him is not hopeless. There is hope in resistance, and it's hard for me to avoid the fact that um, that serves a little bit of an element. Uh, serves as, as at least some element. But, but uh, Jonathan, let me come back around then to your primary point about the foreground, you know, the, the primary place that Gandalf gives to sorrow in Gathering Dark. Um, I... I agree with your general premise that is about the importance of sorrow and uh, the power of sorrowful stories. But I don't think I agree with your reading of Gandalf's syntax in that quotation. Um, When he says there was sorrow then too in gathering... It's about the but. I too agree that the but is important. But the but is not a but of op position in that way. So, okay, so he was saying, he starts by saying, why should we recall it? Because there was sorrow then too and gathering dark. To me, it's the two that's so telling in that moment, Jonathan, because by saying there was sorrow then too, he's connecting that time to the time when, when they are, right? He said, hey, uh, are you fearing, feeling sorrowful, Frodo? Right? Do you feel that you are in the midst of gathering dark? I bet you do. I can understand that, right? Well, hey, guess what? It was like that back then as well, right? That was also the context back then, but what happened back then? But, so there was sorrow and gathering dark, but there was also great valor and great deeds, right? So in the midst of that sorrow and gathering dark, which they experienced like you are experiencing, they rose up, right? They responded with great valor and great deeds and hope even when it seemed dark and hopeless, Right, and so that does to me. Like, it's true that he doesn't start with the great valor and great deeds, but it does seem to me that he is getting there. Right, he starts with the sorrow and the gathering dark, not because he's saying that's what's important about the story. Because again, that's the setting of the story. There was sorrow and gathering dark, but uh, but also right, but great valor and great deeds. Right, um, both of those things were there. And the but is the opposition between the two of them. Although there was sorrow, there was also valor, right? There was darkness, but there was also hope. Um, 
And he's making, through the two, he's making the connection to Frodo's own situation. So it still sounds to me like, uh, at the end of the day, um, a, uh, a word of hope, basically. Um, encouragement to Frodo, rather than saying that it was itself a sorrowful story. The story of the Last Alliance. I mean, again, I'm not arguing that it wasn't, right? The Last Alliance failed, ultimately, big picture, totally. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to, don't, don't, don't mistake me, not trying to say that Elrond is wrong about it. Um, but what I am saying is I don't think that that's, which is, a, but which is, again, why it still strikes me as a little bit odd that Gandalf adds great deeds that were not wholly vain. Because it seems like, so, for the first half, right, there was sorrow in Gathering Dark, right, back then and here, and, uh, but there was valor in great deeds, and they were true, they were mostly vain, right, but they weren't entirely vain, and that last moment seems to me to kind of, um, kind of undermine the message of hope to some extent, uh, I don't know, uh, it, um, it it I, I I don't want to make too much. I'm not trying to make fun of Gandalf, uh, and I, I don't want to be merely um, flippant about it. But um, anyway, it's it's um, that's why since I I can't hear the first part of it right. I mean, I'm not counting the first clause, the, the, that is a chapter of ancient history, which might be good to recall, right? I'm talking, I'm focusing, as Jonathan is, on what are we recalling, right? What comes after that? And there are three parts, right? The context. Shadow and gathering dark, just like now. Great valor and great deeds, right? Okay, hope. In the midst of that uh, uh, darkness and gathering, uh, uh, sorrow and gathering dark, right? And then the last tag, right? P.S. They were kind of mostly vain, though, right? And that's what I don't... I feel like I'm... Um, I feel like I'm... not seeing how all three pieces exactly work together. Um, Cecilia says she thinks the, uh, she wants to point out the ING instead of ED in gathering, right? It's not, the dark hasn't gathered, right? The dark is gathering. And she adds, to me, that means that even back in the last alliance, the darkness was not complete. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, exactly. No, Cecilia, I, I don't think the word but erases what has just been said. It does show opposition, right? I mean, but shows opposition. So, um, so, but, and, and again, as, as, as clearly, great valor and great deeds were in opposition to the darkness and sorrow, right? They were, it were in the midst of darkness and sorrow, and sorrow, they didn't, uh, um, they didn't, uh, they didn't submit to that. Um, but, uh, anyway, sorry, I'm, uh, I'm getting behind on comments here. Um, yeah, okay. Well, see, Baldwin, right. So Baldwin adds, okay, the valor and great deeds are undermined. I agree. Gandalf undermines them that were not wholly vain. Um, he undermines them. Again, he undermines them by basically, it's, it's, it's praise, right? He doesn't say, and great deeds, that mostly were vain, right? I've been paraphrasing it that way, but that's not what he says, right? What he says is praise. They were not wholly vain. 
but it's the kind of compliment that kind of takes the wind out of your sails, right? I mean, if somebody says, like, if somebody say, hey, how did I do? And they're like, hey, that was not completely pointless. It's a compliment, but it's not a compliment that most people really want to hear, right? It's not a compliment that really makes people feel like they accomplished a whole lot. Um, I agree, Baldwin, that the sorrow and the gathering dark are why his reason for bringing up the story, or rather he explicitly establishes that as the point of contact between that story that he's telling and Frodo's story, right? The world around them now. But I don't think that that necessarily makes the sorrow, the focus, like that he's telling a story of sorrow. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Irindis says uh, it could also be he could also be emphasizing the huge odds of any success uh, uh, of the last alliance relating it to Frodo's time. Um, it might look like any action is vain now. Exactly right, right, exactly that uh, that there's hope now, right? That, that if if you think if you feel hopeless, right? Um, well, you know there's no reason to think that the last alliance wasn't hopeless as well. Um, Ah, okay. The Raven King uh, 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 comes in again. John Osglass says, uh, might the reason he emphasizes that the deeds weren't wholly vain be because uh, Gandalf is addressing Frodo, someone for whom these great deeds might seem really vain? After all, he has this ring and Sauron is coming back. Frodo in in particular may be feeling the vanity of the Last Alliance. Yes, I like that line of thinking, right? Um, that um, it would be a very sensible reaction to Gandalf's story of the Last Alliance, right? If Gandalf comes back and he's like, hey, but let's remember, like, they kicked Sauron's butt once before, right? It's not hopeless. And, you know, Frodo could, like, hold up the ring and be like, dude, right? I mean, what good does that do us now, right? Here we are. Um, uh, right. But, um, um, but it doesn't seem to me quite that we're there yet. That is to say, Frodo is still coming to grips with the idea that, that, um, Sauron could lose the ring in the first place, right? That's what he's trying to process. Um, not, his question is not, why was his first loss of the ring not permanent? Right. Rather, his his um, his question is, how on earth did he come to lose it in the first place? Right. Um, So still what we're still kind of marveling at is what the last alliance did accomplish. Right. Um, But uh, yeah. Yeah. And Lynn, you're right. The valor and great deeds of many were undermined by the action of one person. Isildur not throwing the ring into Mount Doom. Um, Yeah, it's true. It's true. Though, again, Gandalf's not there yet either, right? Um, he'll get around to Isildur, but even when he tells Isildur's story, he doesn't, he's not harsh on him, right? He, um, uh, he, uh, he doesn't, um, he doesn't dwell on that. Isildur's failure, right? That's not Gandalf's emphasis there. Anyway, I, um, uh, I should move on, however. You can spend all night talking about this. I don't think this is totally closed. I'm still open to... I 
I still I feel less than 100% satisfied in my understanding of that sentence, which I think is a really important sentence. Um, I think it makes sense in the big picture. Again, I understand all the facts. I understand how it makes sense in the big picture. I understand that you could call it that. It just, in this, in the, in the context in which it's brought up, it doesn't, um, see, Mariel, uh, Mariel Elizabeth says, is it related to Galadriel's calling life in Middle-earth a long defeat? Yeah, in a sense. I mean, I get it. Like, it's not, my objection is not against Gandalf thinking of the Last Alliance as something which was not wholly vain, um, in principle, right? Like, I, I get that it is, right? I, I, I get that point of view. What I don't get is why he would couch it this way to Frodo, right? Why he ends this sentence in this context this way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, that's, that's, my, that's my issue that I don't feel like I totally understand. But uh, anyway, okay. So let's um, let's move on though, because we totally need to um, start tonight's passages, or else we're going to be six weeks in chapter two. All right. So remember, we got through the end of Gollum's story, right? Um, and we've just had the reveal, right? That this that this Smeagol Hobbit creature, that uh, whose story Gandalf has been telling in such detail, uh, is Gollum, right? And Frodo has just. Um, recognize that, right? And this is Frodo's reaction. Gollum, cried Frodo. Gollum? Do you mean that this is the very Gollum creature that Bilbo met? How loathsome! That is such a fascinating response. How loathsome! I think it is a sad story, said the wizard, and it might have happened to others, even to some hobbits that I have known. I can't believe that Gollum was connected with hobbits, however distantly, said Frodo with some heat. What an abominable notion! It is true all the same, replied Gandalf. About their origins, at any rate, I know more than hobbits do themselves, and even Bilbo's story suggests the kinship. There was a great deal in the background of their minds and memories that was very similar. They understood one another remarkably well, very much better than a hobbit would understand, say, a dwarf, or an orc, or even an elf. Think of the riddles they both knew, for one thing. Okay. Um, Two key words from Frodo in this passage, right? Notice his, his, his reaction to the story and to the reveal of the story, right, is sort of, to me, keyed in two words, right? Loathsome and abominable. He has a very strong reaction to this idea. Now, notice, what is he responding to? So first, he, he expresses loathing, right? Not yet, not, not, not initially or not explicitly about um, the, uh, 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 the connection with hobbits. Do you mean that this is the very Gollum creature that Bilbo met? How loathsome. What does he mean by that, right? What does he mean by loathsome, right? Uh, like, what is loathsome exactly about the fact that this is Gollum's backstory, right? Um, I think that... Um, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see, I want to... Uh, 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 Milthaliel says, we talked about Gandalf's tone change last time. Do you think he has switched to this story time tone to get Frodo used to the idea that Smeagol was hobbitish? I think in part, yeah. I mean, again, the question I asked at the beginning was, you know, why does Gandalf adopt this whole storytelling mode? Why is he doing this in the first place? Right? And the answer in part seems to be the setup for this moment. Right? The strength of Frodo's reaction seems to suggest Gandalf was coming around to this on purpose, right? And coming around to it gently. He didn't just drop it like, oh, and by the way, he used to be a hobbit, right? Instead, he tells the story of this riverside hobbit, and then we get the review. Wait, that was Gollum? Right? What seems to be loathsome, I would say, to, to, to Frodo is, I mean, he knows the Gollum story, right? He has, uh, um, he has been told the Gollum story. You know, he's grown up with the Gollum story. And he... Clearly, he views Gollum as a creepy, slimy little monster, right? Something subhuman, essentially. The idea that a hobbit-like creature even after, you know, committing murder and, and doing all the horrible things that Gandalf described, that he could become that loathsome, slimy little creature, um, dark as the darkness, that Bilbo meets in The Hobbit, who wants to eat Bilbo, remember? I mean, that's one of the centerpieces of Bilbo's anecdote about Gollum. Right, and Frodo will certainly remember that he's he's you know become this hideous, twisted, glowy-eyed, scraggly cannibal, right? That's horrifying, right? Um, loathsome. I can see loathsome, right? Um, Gandalf's tone immediately, right? I think it's a sad story, and it might have happened to others, even to some hobbits that I have known. He immediately shows the applicability of this, right? I'm not just telling you a horror story. I'm not just telling you a gruesome tale about how this hobbit became a horrible, loathsome monster, right? I'm telling you a cautionary tale. And it's a cautionary tale which has obvious relevance to Frodo himself, right? This is the tale of the ring bearer. Remember, this has been the subject of the conversation from the very beginning. Remember, that's where Gandalf starts, right? Yeah, that ring that you have, it will come to completely possess you. Remember, he doesn't lead with, oh yeah, hey, that ring you have, turns out it belongs to the Dark Lord and he wants it back and he's coming after you. That's not what he leads with, right? What he leads with is, it's going to hurt you, right? Um, this is going to take possession of you. So why does he tell the story? Why does he give us this this story of the comparatively happy Smeagol down to the loathsome Gollum which Frodo uh, uh, knows from Bilbo's story in order to show what does that look like? What does that mean? You know, he can say things like it would possess him, right? You know, uh, the, 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 the owner of the ring, right? It will come to possess you in time. Uh, okay, you can say that, but what does that even mean, right? What does it look like? to be possessed by the ring, to be ruined by the ring. Gollum, right? And he works up to it very thoroughly and very gently by showing how somebody can... Now, notice 
Smeagol didn't start off in a good place, right? He was uh, he was in a pretty bad place to begin with when he started off, um, but he goes down from where even from where he started, he goes down and down. And again, it's 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 still clearly an important and relevant point for Frodo and M- Mary. Exactly, I do think he's he's giving Frodo a glimpse of what he could uh, become. Um, and Cecilia, yeah, I do suspect that uh, the Sackville Bagginses would be high on the list of other hobbits that Gen- Gandalf has known who could possibly have gone in this direction. Uh, I mean, imagine if Lotho got a hold of a ring of power, right? What would happen to him? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, he'd be on the Gollum fast track for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, as uh, Amy's Revenge says, uh, would uh, it, that it would be uncomfortable to suddenly... Uh, humanize what was heretofore a gross monster. Frodo is clearly experiencing cognitive dissonance here, right? He's grown up with Bilbo's story of Gollum, and he had Gollum pigeonholed in a category, right? Monster. And now Gandalf is telling him, no, connect with him, right? He is a hobbit like you, but he uh, um, he went through this uh, this process, right? He had this uh, this little problem, right? Um, the ring did this to him, um, and then explicitly Frodo rejects it. I can't believe that Gollum was connected with hobbits, however distantly. Don't accept that idea. And Gandalf just says, "Yeah, no, it's true, right? It's true all the same." Um, you know, and he he just pulls rank, right? invokes his authority as a lore master. I know more than hobbits do about their origins. Um, but then, this is, to me, the interesting thing, right? Where he goes from that. Um, even Bilbo's story suggests the kinship, right? Frodo, you've not been paying close enough attention to the Bilbo story. If you've been hearing Bilbo's story, if you've been reading chapter 5 of The Hobbit, and you're coming away with... Bilbo is a, like, noble, heroic character, and Gollum over here is a slimy, hideous monster, right? And, like, there's this huge gulf in between them, and we've got the good guy and we've got the bad guy. Frodo, if that's what you've been getting from that story, you're missing the point. And truly, if you go back and read chapter 5, you'll see he is missing the point. The moment that Bilbo has, remember what leads to his moment of pity, Right? When he takes pity on Gollum, what leads to it is his moment of empathy with Gollum. He feels sympathy for Gollum, um, thinking, imagining what it would be like to live a life like his. Right? He briefly puts himself into Gollum's position, imagining how horrible his life must be, how he must have been twisted by his environment. Right? And doing so evokes pity. In Bilbo, well, Frodo is explicitly refusing to make that step, right? To take that step here, um, and I. So Gandalf points to the riddles. Think of the riddles they both knew for one thing, which is by itself a weak argument. Um, that is to say, he he. Uh, if that's all he were, he was. Um, if that's all he had, right? If that's all Gandalf had. Um, you know, if he was like. I can prove that they were alike. They both knew the same riddles. 
Frodo's counter-argument, which is, of course, what Frodo says immediately after this passage, um, you know, yes, but many people tell riddles, and of much the same kind, right? The fact that they knew the same riddles does not prove that they were culturally related to each other, right? Um, but again, that is not Gandalf's point. Notice how Gandalf comes into this, right? Bilbo's story suggests the kinship. How, Gandalf? There was a great deal in the background of their minds and memories that was very similar. They connected with each other. They understood things in similar ways. By Not just about the fact that they happened to know the same riddles. Because remember, they didn't know the same riddles. There were a couple of them, right? Like, Gollum had obviously heard that teeth riddle before, right? Chestnuts, chestnuts. That's why he calls it a chestnut, right? It's an old chestnut. That means it's a that's a, a really common riddle, you know, a riddle in common circulation. Everybody's heard that one, right? The rest of them are not like that, right? The rest of them, they figure out. Um, what Gandalf is pointing to is, again, it's not the... F- they, they don't just happen to have heard the same set of riddles, because truly anybody could tell riddles, and here they could have heard it from anybody else, from a goblin, right? Um, but no. They figure out each other's riddles, Right? Bilbo, a couple of them by accident, but they are able to connect with each other and follow the train of thought of the other in telling their riddles. Um, It's, in both cases, not always a train of thought they want to follow, right? Uh, Bilbo founds uh, Gollum's riddles horrible, uh, and uh, uh, Gollum gets pretty mad about Bilbo's, right? They don't want to go in those same um, in those same directions. Um, but but they do, right? They are able to do that. And then and I think that he is... Uh, that's what he means, I think, when he says they understood one another remarkably well. Um, much better than a hobbit would understand a dwarf, an orc, or even an elf. Um, anyway, okay, so... Uh, yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, yeah. Let's see. Um, <laughs> uh, D. Schwab says, I wish Sam had paid more attention through the window to this bit. Uh, yeah, no, I hear you. This is going to be a this is going to be a big deal later on. Um, yeah, Cecilia makes a great point. Cecilia is wondering why Frodo was so surprised at the reveal that Smeagol was gone. She says, not that I'm smarter than Frodo, but I don't remember being shocked when I learned who Smeagol was, as I wonder why I was not surprised. I'm guessing it was probably partly uh, his name sounding somewhat uh, similar. I would also say, um, um, I would also add, Cecilia, I think it betrays the fact that this idea, the idea of likeness with Gollum is particularly repugnant to Frodo. He doesn't want to think that. Right, um, it shows how firmly he has Gollum pigeonholed in his mind. Right, he is very plainly, actively. That is an abominable notion, Gandalf. Right, it's not just you're not just wrong. Right, I don't just object. That is abominable. Um, so yeah, he is he is very actively opposed to this idea. Um, so yeah, that's that, and so I I do think it shows his own the extent to which he has his mind made up. 
but let's um, let's see how he goes on. And hobbits don't cheat. Gollum meant to cheat all the time. He was just trying to put poor Bilbo off his guard, and I dare say it amused his wickedness to start a game which might end in providing him with an easy victim, but if he lost, would not hurt him. Only too true, I fear. But there is something else in it, I think, which you don't see yet. Even Gollum was not wholly ruined. He had proved tougher than even one of the wise would have guessed, as a hobbit might. There was a little corner of his mind that, his own, that was still his own, and light came through it, as through a chink in the dark, light out of the past. It was actually pleasant, I think, to hear a kindly voice again, bringing up memories of wind and trees and sun on the grass and such forgotten things. But that, of course, would only make the evil part of him angrier in the end, unless it could be conquered, unless it could be cured. Gandalf sighed. Alas, there is little hope of that for him, yet not no hope. No, not though he possessed the ring so long, almost as far back as he can remember, for it was long since he had worn it much. In the black darkness it was seldom needed. Certainly he had never faded. He is thin and tough still. But the thing was eating up his mind, of course, and the torment had become almost unbearable. Notice Frodo's response. And notice how weak Frodo's response is. Right? That is to say, Frodo's interpretation here, like his, his, his reading of Gollum, right? Um, he puts the worst possible interpretation on Gollum's intentions, right? I dare say it amused his wickedness, right? It's not just that he's saying Gollum was intending to cheat all the time, which is totally unlike a hobbit. That's not how hobbits act. So this proves that he's not a hobbit, right? Because hobbits don't cheat, and Gollum meant to cheat all the time. And uh, in fact, it's just the, the pretense of a fair competition was merely an amusement for his wickedness, right? Okay, Frodo, right? Um, this is not very good proof, I think, personally. Um, and of course, because there's a big... In a sense, right... The elephant in the room here is Bilbo. Bilbo was... He, Gandalf, is arguing. Bilbo and Gollum connected, right? Frodo can see. Frodo's not dumb, right? He can see the application that Gandalf is angling for, right? With this... Um, uh, with this... Story. Right, um, as Gandalf himself made fairly clear, right, this might have happened to other hobbits I have known. Right, hopefully not you, but it could happen. Right, um, and he seems actively to be trying to resist that conclusion. Bilbo would be one primary reason why this wasn't happening to Bilbo. Right, okay, maybe Bilbo felt sim- sympathy for Gollum. Right, maybe he like, kind of identified with Gollum for a moment and had pity on him, right? But but that doesn't mean they're actually alike. They were totally unalike. Hobbits don't cheat. Gollum meant to cheat all the time, right? He was just amusing his wickedness. And, of course, Gandalf's point is, no. Like, there is this one spectrum, right? Gollum is on one end of it. 
Maybe you're still near the other end of it, but Bilbo is further along towards Gollum than you are, right? Frodo clearly does not like to think that, and I don't, I don't think it's just himself that he's thinking of here. I don't think it's he is merely resistant to saying, oh, okay, this applies to me. I don't think he's just resisting the applicability to himself. I think, I think it's Bilbo, and he doesn't like to think that this is what was happening to Bilbo. Um, that Bilbo is being corrupted in this way. Um, because again, if he admits that, if he admits that hobbits who have the ring for long periods of time have this kind of thing happen to them, end up like slimy, horrible cannibals, right? Then, like, what does that say about Bilbo, right? And what might it say, of course, about himself? I'm not saying that he himself is uh, is irrelevant of this, uh, in this. But... Um, but but I don't think it's his. I I I don't get the impression it's his exclusive uh, uh, concern. But um, uh, exactly, yeah. Uh, as Holmes Aggie says, what happened to Gollum was happening to Bilbo. Yes, and Gandalf saw that really clearly. Frodo didn't see it, right? And he clearly doesn't want to think that. He worries about that. I remember, it was one of his first questions: um, Is Bilbo going to be all right? Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, he seeks reassurance about that. Um, and that's one of the primary things that I see as being, uh, um, being very revelatory of how his sort of focus on, on Bilbo here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, excellent. Um, Exactly right, Cecilia. Frodo does not know about the argument Bilbo and Gandalf had before Bilbo left. Remember, Gandalf has alluded to that in this conversation. But all he said, and he said it very vaguely, right? Remember what he said was, um, is when he was talking about how his doubt slept and everything, when he's explaining how much he knew, and he says, until the night of Bilbo's party, right? He said, that night, Bilbo did and said things that made me really, really uneasy, right? He just, he doesn't say what it was, right? He just says he did and said, he said and did things, right? Um, he doesn't say what it was that he did and said. So absolutely, he's not, um, uh, uh, he's not, um, uh, yeah, uh, he, he, so he, he, he clearly doesn't reveal exactly what it was that he, the conversation that he had with Bilbo. So Frodo doesn't know, um, and, this leaves Frodo kind of guessing, based on that vague thing that Gandalf said. How far gone was Bilbo, right? Um, okay. Anyway, good. Um, notice where what Gandalf emphasizes, right? And again, this is in a sense the conclusion of the story, right? Um, Gandalf isn't saying this is the manifest destiny of any hobbit-like creature who holds the ring for a long period of time, right? The, th- the last thing he emphasizes about Gollum is hope, basically, right? Even Gollum was not wholly ruined, right? Gollum was not made into a monster. And basically, this, this is his conclusion, right? Like, Frodo, this is why it is so important for you not to just say, loathsome, abominable, forget about it, right? You can't do that, Frodo. It's super important that you not do that. Not only because it's important that you keep it, you know, you know that you think about, um, 
that you think about what could happen, right? That you make sure you take the um, uh, the the lesson to heart because it could be you, but also because you have to see the end point, right? You you need the hope that this story brings, even Gollum. You can't dismiss Gollum as a monster because he's not completely a monster. And he's not completely a mo- The fact that he's not completely a monster is a very good sign. And very good for you and super important, Frodo, for you to understand. Even in Gollum, who was almost completely ruined, there was still a corner of his mind that was his own. He was not wholly possessed. There was... Light came through like a chink in the dark. Right? Right, Carissa, he's not a wraith, for one thing. Exactly. Um, but not only is he not a wraith, um, he's still there is still a part of his mind. So we saw in Bilbo, right, the yes-no thing, right? We saw Bilbo fighting with himself back there in Chapter 1, that the way in which the ring, as Gandalf says in Chapter 2, the ring is beginning to get control. Well, um, the... Uh, uh, the so it, the the ring is beginning to get control, um, but it even in Gollum it still doesn't have complete control. This I think is very relevant. A couple of you were pointing out um, earlier on uh, that um, uh, that this sort of relates to the slinker and stinker stuff we're going to get later. It's true. It does. The main thing that I would emphasize about that is that it's um, you remember what I was saying before about um, being careful about the Peter Jackson adaptation, right? Um, How, although I love what Peter Jackson did with Gollum and with the whole self-exorcism thing and everything, uh, it's not exactly the way that Gollum is depicted in the book. And so I just want to be careful that we don't make sort of too many assumptions about that. Here's the main thing I would say here. What we saw in Bilbo, that, yes, I want to, no, I don't want to, I'm I'm intending to put it on the mantelpiece, but my hand involuntarily pulls it back. Um, what we see there, what we're seeing in Gollum with the slinker stinker thing and with him talking to himself and arguing with himself. It's not just that. If we see Gollum talking to himself as being simply Gollum's own will versus the domination of the ring, right? If that's how we see it, then, um, we are, I won't say missing the point, but we're not seeing exactly how Tolkien is describing it. If you look at Gollum in The Hobbit, when Gollum is arguing with himself, this is not Gollum's evil side versus Gollum's good side. Um, This is just Gollum debating with himself. There's one side which is more cautious and one side which is uh, uh, which is more sort of worried and, you know, but so you can see he has different angles on the question. Um, But it's not good Gollum versus bad Gollum. It's not Gollum versus Smeagol at all at that point. We're going to have to wait. We're going to have to wait until we meet Gollum and see. I want to be looking carefully when Gollum talks to himself and see. What do we learn about Gollum's psyche here? Um, What does Frodo see when 
we hear Gollum talking. So I don't want to go into too much detail about that yet because we're not there yet. Um, we'll get there, and when we do, we'll we'll want to remember this chapter because how Gandalf describes it is not the two sides of him, right? Gollum is almost entirely ruined. Most of his mind is dominated by the ring. There's just a tiny little chink in the darkness, right? And light shines through. Um, the ring is, but the ring is eating up his mind, and the torment had become almost unbearable. Notice what Gandalf is doing here, right? Don't dismiss, dismiss him as loathsome, and the idea of your being like him is abominable. It's far from abominable. It's the opposite of abominable, right? It is hopeful. It is good news. And um, don't forget the main point, Frodo, right? Don't forget the main point for you to have sympathy, for you to feel pity for Gollum, right? Um, the torment had become almost unbearable. Was, was Gollum wicked? Yes. Was he going to cannibalize Bilbo? Yes. Was he intending to cheat? Probably. Was he really quite a nasty creature? Absolutely he was. But he was a tortured, nasty creature. Um, and that is a big difference, right? That's the difference, it seems, that uh, Gandalf is trying to, uh, uh, is trying to convey. All right, um, let's keep going. All the great secrets under the mountains had turned out to be just empty night. There was nothing more to find out, nothing worth doing, only nasty, furtive eating and resentful remembering. He was altogether wretched. He hated the dark, and he hated light more. He hated everything, and the ring most of all. "'What do you mean?' said Frodo. "'Surely the ring was his precious, and the only thing he cared for. "'But if he hated it, why didn't he get rid of it, or go away and leave it?' "'You ought to begin to understand, Frodo, for after all you have heard,' said Gandalf. "'He hated it and loved it, as he hated and loved himself. "'He could not get rid of it. "'He had no will left in the matter.'" Um. He hated and loved it as he hated and loved himself. Remember that sentence when we meet Gollum. Um, when he says, my precious, is he talking to the ring? Right? Is he talking to the ring all the time? Is that always addressing the ring? I'm not convinced that it necessarily is. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, uh, I, I, I think that, um, again, remember this, right? Remember, he hates and loves the ring and hates and loves himself. And I think we'll see some of both of that when we get to, when we get to Gollum in the end. Um, okay. Um, let's see. Yeah, Mary Elle says you can be everything but indifferent to the ring. Right, exactly. Um, Notice how that the, the the kind of uh, uh, the kind of sympathy that he's trying to raise in Frodo, right? Um, he could not get rid of it. He had no will left in the matter. This is the final point of application, right? Yes, Gollum is nasty. Right, but he's nasty because of the nasty thing that was done to him. 
And that's what he seems to be asking Frodo to remember. A ring of power looks after itself, Frodo. It may slip off treacherously, but its keeper never abandons it. At most, he plays with the idea of handing it on to someone else's care, and that only at an early stage, when it first begins to grip. But as far as I know, Bilbo alone in history has ever gone beyond playing and really done it. He needed all my help, too, and even so, he would never have just forsaken it or cast it aside. It was not Gollum, Frodo, but the ring itself that decided things. The ring left him. What, just in time to meet Bilbo? said Frodo. Wouldn't an orc have suited it better? It is no laughing matter, said Gandalf, not for you. It was the strangest event in the whole history of the ring so far. Bilbo's arrival just at that time, and putting his hand on it blindly in the dark. Okay, so here we have uh, back to the question of the ring's agency, right? To the question of the ring's uh, of the ring's activity, um, and I. Um, uh, Notice Frodo's skepticism, but again, this seems to me really interesting. Where Frodo is psychologically here, he's still resistant. He's trying to make jokes about it, right? This is absurd, right? He's resistant to Gandalf's story because he doesn't want to think about this stuff. Um, seeing him being resistant to all of these things, trying to kind of get out of this, right? Trying to deny that all of this stuff is, is, is true, right? Um, is, uh, is really interesting. But of course, what Gandalf is saying is really important here, right? He's now moved on from saying, okay, from talking, from focusing on Gollum and he turns to the ring, right? A ring of power looks after itself. That suggests that it does have will, right? I, I take that sentence, a ring of power looks after itself. It may slip off, but it's ke- treacherously, but its keeper never abandons it. The fact that an action of the, the ring is, is, is given an action, slipping off, right, the hand of its, of, its, of its wielder, and that it's characterized, right, as treacherous, um, that, uh, that is, um, uh, that's clearly, I think, I think that really proves Gandalf believes that the ring has will, has intention itself, right? It looks after itself. It has desires. It wants things, and it does things. Um, a, uh, a person, the owner of a ring, might play with the idea um, of handing it off, but he would never just abandon it. Um, it was not Gollum, but the ring itself that decided things. The ring left him. What Gandalf begins to point to here, right, is there are um, there are there are two things at work, right? Um, it is no laughing matter that it happens to find Bilbo. Was it going? Was it? Did it want to go to Bilbo? No, the ring didn't want to go to go to Bilbo. Wouldn't wouldn't an orc? Have uh, have served it better? Yes, it undoubtedly would have served it better, right? Um, 
But what Gandalf emphasizes, right? That was the strangest event in the entire history of the ring so far. Everything from Celebrimbor on to Frodo, right? For the entire history of the of the Rings of Power, the most strange element in the entire story was Bilbo's co- apparently coincidental lucky putting his, you know, the idea that this random guy and that one of all the people, right, of everyone who traveled through the Misty Mountains in that whole era, right, um, that Bilbo should be the one who blindly put his hand on it in the dark, right? This is not a coincidence, right? You get this... uh, he is giving Frodo the sense here, right? Both he and Gollum. Both Frodo and Gollum. They're not the actors here, right? Um, they are they are merely they are merely the patients, not the agents involved here. So who is opposed to the ring? Who's the other player? You know, if the ring is on one side, you know, doing this stuff, who's 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 doing the other? There was more than one power at work, Frodo. The ring was trying to get back to its master. It had slipped from Isildur's hand and betrayed him. Then when a chance came, it caught poor Diagol, and he was murdered. And after that, Gollum, and it had devoured him. It could make no further use of him. He was too small and mean, and as long as it stayed with him, he would never leave his deep pool again. So now, when its master was awake once more and sending out his dark thought from Mirkwood, it abandoned Gollum only to be picked up by the most unlikely person imaginable, Bilbo from the Shire. Behind that there was something else at work, beyond any design of the ringmaker. I can put it no plainer than by saying that Bilbo was meant to find the ring, and not by its maker, in which case you also were meant to have it, and that may be an encouraging thought. It is not, said Frodo, though I am not sure that I understand you. Gandalf shows the pattern in the ring's actions, right? Look at what the ring... We know what the ring wanted. The ring wanted to get back to its master. It was trying to do that, right? It left Isildur, right? It, it escaped from Isildur and betrayed him to his death. It caught Diego, and he was murdered, right? So it, it has this pattern, right, of ensnaring people and then betraying them to their deaths, but it's not just randomly destroying folks, right? It is trying to get back to its master. Um, and it had devoured Gollum. But Gollum was now an obstacle, right? He was too small and mean. As long as it stayed with him, he would never leave his deep pool again. The ring figures out that it has to leave Gollum somehow in order to get anywhere, right? In order to get home. Um... But then, the intervention, right? The intervention is, when it abandons Gollum, it is picked up by the most unlikely person imaginable, Bilbo from the Shire. Um, behind that, there was something else at work. And then we have one of my favorite Gandalf sentences of all time. I can put it no plainer than by saying that Bilbo was meant to find the ring and not by its maker. I I always challenge that, right? You know, Gandalf, I bet you could put it plainer than that, actually. You're still being a little cryptic there, right? Um, 
Um, uh, by whom? Could you put forward a, a, a suspect, right, for who else, who was meaning him to find the right? Clearly he's talking about fate, some larger destiny, right? He's talking about the, the sort of larger providence that is at work here. Um, and uh, um, this is... Uh, um, you know, this is this is what um, what Gandalf points to here: doom in the wider sense, right? Doom in the sense of of destiny, that which has been laid down to come before, right? Um, the intention, that meaning, right? We know that the ring meant something, right? It intended something, um, but uh, we know that somebody else intended something else as well, right? Um, and it was not just the... Ma- so there was not just the will of the ring and its maker. That will, those wills, were being opposed by someone else, right? By fate, by destiny, by God, ultimately. But Gandalf doesn't say that. He doesn't make it as plain as that, right? Um, uh, you know, by the Valar... By somebody else, right? There is another power there. Um, and, uh, but notice Frodo's response, right? Um, in which case, you also were meant to have it. And that may be an encouraging thought, right? And uh, Frodo says, it's not an encouraging thought, right? Um, it is... Uh, uh, I don't find it encouraging at all that I was meant to have the ring, <laughs> right? Um, why? You think about that, right? Um, just because somebody else scripted this for me, right? Just because I was, you know, destined to have this, um, that somebody else intended it for me doesn't mean I want it, right? Doesn't mean that it's good. It doesn't say I'm going to win or something like that, right? Um yeah, exactly. Um, and he says, though, I'm not sure I, I understand you. I would add, I'm not sure he could understand him, right? Frodo has no frame of reference for Gandalf's cryptic remarks. It's one of the reasons I find the crypticness of it very Gandalfian in this moment, right? I mean, it's, this is, um, uh, this is the, the, sort of strange moment, right, that um, Gandalf is is uh, saying someone else, and Frodo has no way of knowing who else. He's barely even been exposed to the concept, right? He's never... Has has he ever heard of Iluvatar? I mean, maybe he has uh, from Bilbo through the elves, right? Uh, maybe he's heard enough elvish stories to, 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 to have that context. Um... But it's not really clear. Um, yes, uh, Alia, I too love how Tolkien plays with the issues of predestination and free will. It's a it's an important question. It's a major question, and I think that it's um, it is really fun. Tolkien is very thoughtful in how he handles the situation, um, and he's very non-simplistic about it. Um, he does not 
seem to agree with a hard line in either direction. Is there destiny? Yes. Yes. Are things mapped out? You know, does does God know what's going to happen? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he does. Does that mean there's no such thing as free will? No. No. There's is such thing as free will. Um, anyway, so it's, uh, it's, but again, hardly surprising that Frodo doesn't understand uh, exactly what Gandalf is talking about. Look at where Frodo goes from here. But how have you learned all this about the ring and about Gollum? Do you really know it all, or are you just guessing still? Gandalf looked at Frodo, and his eyes glinted. I knew much, and I have learned much, he answered. But I am not going to give an account of all my doings to you. The history of Elendil and Isildur and the One Ring is known to all the wise. Your ring is shown to be that One Ring by the fire riding alone, apart from any other evidence. And when did you discover that? asked Frodo, interrupting. Just now in this room, of course, answered the wizard sharply, but I expected to find it. I have come back from dark journeys and long search to make that final test. It is the last proof, and all is now only too clear. Making out Gollum's part and fitting it into the gap in the history required some thought. I may have started with guesses about Gollum, but I am not guessing now. I know. I have seen him. Um... Notice where Frodo goes. And I think this is fascinating, especially when we think back to the beginning, right? When we think back to um, where Frodo started this conversation with Gandalf. Remember how he was pressing Gandalf, asking his question a second time? So how long have you known this, Gandalf? No, really. How long have you known this, right? Um, And Gandalf being kind of wishy-washy about it and hemming and hawing about it, right? Now we see that he's pushing the other direction entirely, right? It's almost like he's grasping at straws, as I suggest in my in my subtitle here. Um, how have you learned all... Do you really know it, or are you just guessing, right? You're making part of this up, right? This isn't, this isn't for sure. This isn't definite. You know, before he was, he was trying to push Gandalf to reveal what he really knew. Now that Gandalf has revealed the whole thing... He's like, but there's probably room for doubt, right? I mean, this is a theory, right? This this is just your theory, right? This is not um, uh, this is not uh, this is not a certain a certain thing, um, and Gandalf's like, no. But notice, Gandalf gets annoyed. I knew much, and I have learned much, but I am not going to give an account of all my doings to you, right? Uh, he gets a little snappy with Frodo here because he can see Frodo. You're just trying to get out of this now, right? You're 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 kind of. If you're going to start questioning, what I've been telling you, don't, <laughs> right? Um, and he, he he cites his sources, right? The history of the early history of the ring. Everybody know all the wise know that, right? We have proved that your ring is the one ring by the fire writing alone. You know, and then notice when Frodo's like, but when did you discover that, right? He goes back to the how long have you known, and he's like, I just discovered it now, but I knew it. Frodo is, seems to be, he wants to avoid the point. All of this is coming together, right? And it's all coming together on him. This history of the ring. Oh my gosh, this ring that I have really is the one ring of power that Sauron made, and that presumably he's going to want back. Right, this ring really does have the power 
to destroy. That's not a theoretical idea, right? That business about destroying, like we have a case study. I've just been told the case study of what it do, what it consuming a a um, hobbit looks like, right? And it's Gollum of all the loathsome things, right? Um. So, my ring is this ring. This is what could happen to me. Uh, I have to, you know, he has to confront that this is what was happening to Bilbo. This is what is happening to him and is going to happen to him. Um, and he seems to be, you know, notice how he's been contradicting Gandalf all the way through today in, in the passages that we're doing today, right? He, re- you know, he refuses to believe that Gollum and, and, uh, and this Smeagol could be the same, right? That the Gollum could have been a hobbit. Um, you know, now he's questioning like that, that, uh, uh, not the facts necessarily, but kind of hoping that there's some room for doubting the facts, right? You said before you were doubtful and suspicious. Maybe you're just suspicious still, right? Maybe this is just a theory, not just a theory. Um, uh, and he says, you know, no, I, I, I'm not guessing about Gollum, right? I saw him. I can prove this is based on actual evidence, Right? His longing for the ring proved stronger than his fear of the orcs, or even of the light. After a year or two, he left the mountains. You see, though he was still bound by desire of it, the ring was no longer devouring him. He began to revive a little. He felt old, terribly old, yet less timid, and he was mortally hungry. Light, light of sun and moon, he still feared and hated, and he always will, I think, but he was cunning. He found he could hide from daylight and moonshine and make his way swiftly and softly by dead of night with his pale, cold eyes and catch small, frightened, or unwary things. He grew stronger and bolder with new food and new air. He found his way into Mirkwood, as one would expect. "'Is that where you found him?' asked Frodo. "'I saw him there,' answered Gandalf. But before that he had wandered far, following Bilbo's trail. It was difficult to learn anything from him, for certain.' for his talk was constantly interrupted by curses and threats. What had it got in its pockets is, he said. It wouldn't say. No, precious. Little cheat. Not a fair question. It cheated first, it did. It broke the rules. We ought to have squeezed it. Yes, precious. And we will. Precious. Okay. Um, what do you think? What do you think about this? What do you notice here? Um, what does, uh, why does he go back to Gollum's story here now? Right, he's just had, Gandalf has just uh, sort of had to sort of snappishly put Frodo in his place. Right, stop question. It's 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 no good questioning this stuff. Right, it's been proven. So he goes back to Gollum. Right, yeah, Gollum came out. Um, and we talk about Gollum's present state. Right. Um. Look at what the longing of the ring did. Right? It proved stronger than his fear. And he left the mountains. But notice, though still bound by desire of the ring, this, the ring, the desire of the ring still possesses him, right? But the ring isn't devouring him anymore. Right? He is no longer in the wraithification process. Right? Um, he had begun to revive a little. Um, so we have strength growing within Gollum himself, right? And um, uh, being um, being this conflict 
not exactly conflict, but um, opposition between Gandalf, between Gollum's own self and the ring's control of him. Right? So it's interesting that he emphasizes that. Um, he grew stronger and bolder with new food and new air. Um, now, here's my question. Why, uh... Oh, sorry. Why does Gandalf give the dialogue? What is... What's up with the dialogue there at the end? He's giving a sample of Gollum's speech, right? On the one hand, you could say that this is, um... Uh... Gandalf proving himself, right? You know, that, um... Gandalf, uh... Uh... Gandalf is... giving evidence, right? To support his claim that he talked to Gollum and knows all this stuff for a fact. Um, he's like, look, I can prove that I was talking to Gollum, right? Here's, um... Uh, here is... a quote from Gollum, right? Um... Why? Why does he give this quote, though? His, t- uh... What had it got in its pockets is? It wouldn't say. No, precious. Little cheat. Not a fair question. It cheated first, it did. It broke the rules. We ought to have squeezed it. Yes, precious. And we will. Precious. Two things I would observe about that. One immediately, and one in a little bit. The immediate observation. Notice how that corresponds with what Frodo had said. Remember Frodo's reaction to the reveal about Gollum's identity? Hobbits don't cheat. It meant to cheat all the time. The fact that Gollum meant to cheat proves that Go- that Gollum is not like me, right? And then, what does Gandalf reveal? Yeah, Frodo, guess what Gollum said about you, right? Or about Bilbo, right? But guess what Gollum's point of view on that is, right? It cheated first. It broke the rules. Gosh, isn't that odd, Frodo, right? Um, In a sense, notice how he sort of shows... um, Notice how he, 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 he sort of shows the similarity of thought there, right? But he also totally undermines Frodo's own argument, right? His abominable argument, his loathsome argument. Uh, hey, you know, that's kind of just like what Gollum says about Bilbo and about uh, presumably hobbits in general, Bagginses in general, anyway. Um, the other thing is, what is his resolve, right, based on that? It cheated, right? It cheated, it broke the rules, it stole from us. It doesn't say it's stealing here, a little cheat, Right, we ought to have squeezed it, and we will. Um, yeah, Mary Gollum is seeking to justify himself for his thoughts and actions. He is exactly. Mightn't that mean that Frodo is also trying to justify himself in some sense, right, or to justify his what his fears, his uh, uh, to sort of shore up his own way of thinking about things. Um, let's keep going. I'm trying to get past a certain point here today. 
and uh, we're just about, it's almost time for the field trip. What he had been doing he would not say. He only wept and called us cruel, with many a golem in his throat. And when we pressed him, he whined and cringed, and rubbed his long hands, licking his fingers as if they pained him, as if he remembered some old torture. But I am afraid there is no possible doubt. He had made his slow, sneaking way, step by step, mile by mile, south, down at last to the land of Mordor. A heavy silence fell in the room. Frodo could hear his heart beating. Even outside everything seemed still. No sound of Sam's shears could now be heard. "'Yes, to Mordor,' said Gandalf. "'Alas, Mordor draws all wicked things, "'and the dark power was bending all its will to gather them there. "'The ring of the enemy would leave its mark, too, "'leave him open to the summons, "'and all folk were whispering then of the new shadow in the south "'and its hatred of the west. "'There were his fine new friends who would help him in his revenge. "'Wretched fool! "'In that land he would learn much, too much for his comfort.' And sooner or later, as he lurked in pride on the borders, he would be caught and taken for examination. That is the way of it, I fear. When he was found, he had already been there long and was on his way back, on some errand of mischief. But that does not matter now. His worst mischief was done. Um. Yeah. Oh, cool, yeah. Um. Uh, Sharon makes a great observation. She notes how Frodo denied Gollum's personhood by saying that he couldn't be related to hobbits at all, right? And then notices that Gollum is also denying Bilbo's personhood by calling him an it, right? It cheated first, right? Yeah, I I love how the the dehumanation goes both ways, right? Um, uh, Yeah, exactly. And um, Marielle, you are exactly anticipating um, where I'm going with that. Very good. Um... And yes, the, the idea that Mordor, uh, 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 Mr. Raven King, uh, the idea that Mordor draws evil things to it is fascinating, right? And, of course, serves as a kind of external emblem for the process that was already going on with Frodo, or with Gollum, rather, right? He was being ruined, right? The, the desire for the ring was destroying him, and he is now hooked Right, he is not, his own will is his desire is after the ring, and he is being drawn to his own destruction. Right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, he's drawn down at last to the land of Mordor. Notice how Gandalf persistently through the whole story, the thing he keeps emphasizing to Frodo is what a tragic story this is, right? I think it's a sad story, he says, and the way he tells it is very consistent with that. It's a sad story, right? Um, Gollum's story is a tragedy. Uh, He is taken down, drawn by his will, but against his will, down into Mordor, and then eventually he's taken, right? And Gandalf doesn't avoid the fact that Gollum did mischief, right? His worst mischief, his worst mischief was done, right? Through Gollum, the enemy found out that the ring existed, and that it was born by a hobbit in the Shire, right? Uh, this is this is horrible, right? Um, but he emphasizes this was Gollum being betrayed himself, right? Um, this is Gollum himself 
being manipulated and destroyed. Um, it is sad, exactly, uh, Mr. Osgloss. It is sad for Gollum uh, that he gets drawn to the place where the Lord of the Rings lives, exactly. He thinks he'll help to get his ring back, and it is the worst place to go. Mordor is, is the last place that, uh, that Gollum would really, Gollum really want to be. Um, so, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Uh, keep going a little bit. Yes, alas, through him the enemy has learned that the one has been found again. He knows where Isildur fell. He knows where Gollum found his ring. He knows that it is a great ring, for it gave long life. He knows that it is not one of the three, for they have never been lost, and they endure no evil. He knows that it is not the seven or the nine, for they are accounted for. He knows that it is the one, and he has at last heard, I think, of hobbits and the Shire. The Shire. He may be seeking it now, if he has not already found out where it lies. Indeed, Frodo, I fear that he may even think that the long unnoticed name of Baggins has become important. Um, this is, uh, this is really bad news. <laughs> right. Um, uh, yeah, and, and uh, uh, Amy's Revenge, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, uh, you know, he's sort of imagining Sauron thinking, okay, what's a hobbit? You know, <laughs> what's a shire? This doesn't help me at all. Um, one question that a lot of people ask is, knowing this, as Gandalf has just admitted that he knows this, why does Gandalf not flee immediately with Frodo? Why does he leave Frodo around for the Black Riders to find? The answer is, we don't, it's not, um, it's not as simple as that. Right, people forget how big the world is. People even forget what it's like to live in a world without, you know, the internet and, uh, uh, you know, satellite maps and things like that. He can't just, you know, uh, uh, pull out his phone, open up ways, and get, uh, you know, walking directions to the Shire from Mordor. Um, this is a land that Gandalf knows full well is not going to be on very many maps. Nobody down in that region knows where it is. He has no reason to think that Sauron has ever heard of Hobbits or the Shire before. Um, yes, he's heard of it. Yes, he's probably seeking it, but there is no... <laughs> JJ48 says, Siri, find Baggins. Right, exactly. Exactly. Um, it's just not that simple. Uh, so... Gandalf has every reason to think this is going to take a really long time. What's more, of course, as he'll reveal later, he has every reason to think that the ring raids are not going to be available for this particular, um, uh, for this particular job, right? So that's kind of a nasty surprise when that breaks later on. Um, but uh, yes, Mary Ellen, you're right. We Americans don't realize how generic the word Shire is. Yeah, it's really not very helpful uh, at all. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's um, good. Yeah, Grimm says, had the ring been somewhere else, Sauron could have moved immediately against them. Rivendell, Gondor, he could have sent his servants. But with the Shire, he had to find out where it is. If it wasn't a hobbit, the war would have been lost before they had a chance. Exactly, Grimm. This is why I think that knowing everything, as thinking through what Gandalf has revealed about what he knows and how he found it out, his decision both not to do anything right away right now, but also not to have done anything for the last 17 years is totally justified. Um, where, where could the ring be safer? 
I don't think the ring would be. I forget, somebody I think on Twitter was asking me this, saying, well, come on, wouldn't it have been a little safer in Rivendell, right, like elf lords and stuff? Wouldn't that have been? No, because it wouldn't have been safe from the elf lords, right? The Shire is the perfect hiding spot for the ring, and Gandalf can see this, right? Gandalf can see this. No, nowhere could it be safer than Bag End, right? In the hands of the Baggins is in a place where nobody takes themselves seriously enough, right? None, n- none of the hobbits of the Shire are going to be tempted to make themselves a ring lord, right? They might get corrupted and go Gollumish over time, and that's what he's worried about. That's why he comes back and checks on Frodo's health, right? But they're not going to claim it for themselves. That same could not be said in Rivendell. It would be in danger from the residents of Rivendell, from Elrond himself, possibly, right? Elrond would probably pass that test, but, you know, I, exactly. So... Um, we don't know for sure, right? Gandalf doesn't know for sure. So it's safe there, but also from discovery, exactly as Grimm was just saying, um, there are very few other places on in Middle-earth where it could be that Sauron would probably never even have heard of, right? Not only does he not know that they have it, even if he finds out they're not going to be able to, he's not going to be able to tell um, what it means and where it is. Um, because why would he even have heard of it? How would he even know? Almost nobody knows where the Shire is and what hobbits are. As we see throughout the rest of the Lord of the Rings, when people meet hobbits and they're like, what the heck are you? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, Exactly. Irindus says, where can I hide this where no one knows what it is, no one knows it's there, no one knows the location exists, and no one's heard of a person who would take it there? Exactly. It's it's the idea, you know, the the gap between the the river and the mountain, right? How did the ring get from where Isildur dropped it to where, where Gollum lost it and Bilbo found it? Right, but of course Gandalf is the only one who has any clue of how it got from the Misty Mountains to the Shire. Right? I mean, talk about your uh, unlikely steps, right? Your unlikely journeys. And more importantly, remember what he was saying about the chess match, right? Gandalf says Bilbo was meant to have it, and therefore, Frodo, you were meant to have it. That, I believe, is the other thing that people who question Gandalf's decision don't take seriously enough. He said... Gandalf said he believes that Bilbo was destined to have it. Some power which was moving in opposition to Sauron and the ring chose Bilbo. What is Gandalf going to be like? I think I can upgrade that, right? No, that's not going to be what he's, uh, where he's going to go and what he's going to say. Um, Alright. Um, I wanted to get to the to Gandalf's great speech about pity, uh, but we're running over, so I'm going to save that for next time. And I'll actually, so we'll start with that next time, and I think um, it'll actually be a good way to start next time. What we're going to do next time is focus on uh, Frodo's choice. That's really where the um, that's really where we end up at the end of the chapter. It all comes down to when Gandalf asks Frodo, "Well, have you decided what to do?" Right. Um, so. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll focus on that next time and we'll begin with, uh, 
Frodo's desire to execute Gollum. <clears throat> but okay, let's um, let's it's field trip time. So let's go on a field trip. Let's go to. We're going to go back to the Shire today. Um, so let's uh, uh, everyone who wants to join me here on Crick Hollow, um, uh, will uh, can can. Uh, go with. I'm just gonna go. I'm just gonna take a quick horse out there. So uh, if you guys want to uh, come join, thanks you for thank you for joining me here in the lore hall. And uh, if you want to head out, we'll just. I'm just gonna go to West Bree, and we will take. Uh, uh, we'll we'll head out from there to Mickle Delving. We've been exploring the Shire. Of course, we have uh, lots of times in which to explore, and I really love what they've done with the Shire, and I'm really interested both in sort of Shire culture as we've been looking at it, but also in uh, uh, you know some of the different kind of quest lines they have and everything. So I want to be looking at that here as we uh, as we go through. Let me. There we go. Good. All right. Oops, there we go. I'll saddle up for my brief trip to the stable master here in Bree. Lagging a little bit because it's Bree. Okay, Mr. Stable Master. Wow. Never met you before? I can't see you, Mr. Stable Master, because somebody's blocking you. There you are. Greetings. There you are. Okay. Let us go to Mickledelving. All right. Okay, and those of you who want to make, I, I, I should still be able to track with the, uh, the Discord channel as well, so those of you who want to make observations about what we're looking at. So what we're going to look at today is, uh, I want to go to, we've, we've done a lot of the Shire, so l- let me look for a second at the map. So, we've, of course, been around Hobbiton quite a bit. We looked at Sandyman's Mill, and we went up the hill, and we went to Bag End, and we saw Bagshot Row. Uh, we went up north to Overhill in the Bindbowl Wood. We saw the Walking Tree, and we went out to Needlehole uh, and in the Rushick Bog and saw the Stone Troll out there. Uh, the other time, we went down through Frogmorton out to Budgeford, up through to Scary and Brockenborings, and ended at the statue of, uh, uh, of uh, Bullroar Took up there, um, uh, playing croquet with the, with, with, with the head of Golf Fimble. Uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 Goblin King. Today, I want to head to Tuckborough. We haven't been to Tuckborough yet, so I want to head to Tuckborough and then go out towards Stock. We're not going to go down to the Marish because we'll get a chance to visit the Marish later on. Uh, we're not going to go to Woodhall because again, we're, we're, we will uh, have a chance when we get to Chapter Three and Four uh, to follow in the path of the uh, of of the of the company as they go through. Um, but today I do want to, um... How do you do? Oh, I'm fine. How are you, Anne Fast Tunnelly? Um, I want to, I, I want to head out to, uh, 
the sort of the uh, the the eastern parts of the Shire and Tuckborough because we haven't been there yet. So let's go see the Great Smiles and uh, uh, and what we've seen out there. So more observations. So here we are going through Mickle Delving, which of course we've now seen many times before in the big monument garden that we have there. So we're going to be going mostly familiar spots here at first. And, um, oh yeah, Grim the Walking Tree is up in the Bine Bowl Wood. It's up in the far north, um, right under the mountains, uh, where the terrible spider webs are. And you got to pass through the spider webs. And uh, then you can uh, find the walking tree who is who has his bowl bound, as it were, uh, by the spiders. And you got to rescue him. So uh, the if it's the same walking tree, and again I don't fully agree with our depiction of the walking tree. I suspect based on the description that Sam gives that it was an ant, not a horn, uh, that was spotted on the North Downs. It was uh, taken for an elm tree because, of course, we know that ants are the you know they look like uh, uh, you know many different species of trees. So doubtless there are in fact uh, elmish ants. Um, and but it, it's the the length of the stride that Sam describes um, that leads me to believe that um, it is uh, it is in fact an ant and not a horn because horns don't they're not depicted as striding in that same way. Okay, so here we've come to the same intersection now. Those of you who have been watching will know this this where where the East Road. This is the main uh, uh, road through Bree from from uh, it comes down. From the Blue Mountains, this is the Dwarf Road um, at Waymeet, and comes out towards Bree. Uh, and we've headed down. There's Hobbiton with the granaries and the mill there behind the trees, the ivy bush, and of course the hill. And there's Bag End up on top of the hill, the party tree, party field uh, down there, Bind Bowl Wood and Overhill up over in that direction. But today we're going to turn around and go the other way, north or south, south, uphill, south uh, to uh, uh, to Tuckborough. All right. So here we have uh, a bunch of hobbit holes, right? The the Took clan, it's not exactly like Buckland. It's not like, um, as we'll see when we get to Buckland, um, it's not like uh, Brandy Hall, where you have one, like all of the Brandy Bucks live together in this one huge, big, communal, enormous hole, right? Uh, Tuckborough is not like that. We see that, like, all the different Tooks live, see they have all these separate houses, like those across the bridge over there, right, and down the road. There's a few more in the side of the hill here, um, you know, and we can see some. Every road you go down, you find more little Took holes, right? And here's some more Took holes over here. Um, so it's a town that's set up more like Mickle Delving. Um, this makes uh, Brandy Hall much more unique, right? That uh, the way the Brandy Bucks all live communally, and you'll remember that fits, right? That's one of the things that Gaffer Gamgee um, points out as being queer about the Bucklanders, right? Remember how he calls Brandy, he, say, he say, call, says of Brandy Hall, he says it's a regular warren by all accounts, right? It's like a, it's like a rabbit warren. Um, uh, instead of a proper hobbit community, right? Where which you know, but anyway, so Tuckborough is more like it's these are this is this is great smiles, right? Um, and it's uh, it's more like it's bigger, but this is not a huge mega community. This is a very old 
stately Hobbit mansion, right? Look at the many windows, the many different levels as it extends into the hill, the one very grand front entrance. Bag End, Bag End is like, you know, Bungo Baggins was new money, right? The Tooks here in Tuckborough, this is old money, right? So let's, um, let's head into the Great Smiles. Okay, and we see whom we find here. Let me turn on names here for a minute. There's Thane Paladin Took. This, of course, is Pippin's dad, who is the right Thane of the Shire. Now, the fact that his name is, that he is called Thane Paladin, is a little bit misleading because he doesn't actually use that name. Um, he doesn't actually use that name in uh, uh, um, normal practice. Um, the, the title, Thane, has kind of fallen out of usage, we're told. Though the tradition of using Roman numerals, Roman numerals after their name, he's still um, Thane, he's Paladin Took the second, right? Um, so so using, ke- keeping track of the numbers of your name as if it were a royal name, right? Um, that is uh, still sort of a normal, a normal part of things. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, so... so it's a little bit misleading in a sense that they call him Thane Paladin, but but I think it's 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 sort of appropriate and it's interesting. We don't even really hear of him. He's he's a non-issue. He's a non-player uh, in the events of the book all the way through until uh, we get to know about Pippin. It's only when Pippin learns his uh, is mentions his name that we even learn what the Thane's name was. Um, see now, if we look around, notice how the this is the, the sort of the main entry hall the great smiles, right? And we see a lot of sort of traditional homey details. Look like next to the door, we've got a long row of hats, right, of uh, hoods, right? Just like we might see in Bag End. There's bins here for what look like, don't these look like boot shelves or something? Like a place where you would put your, you'd put your muddy boots if, you, if you're wearing boots. And yes, hobbits wear boots. Uh, they, they do not go barefoot all the time. Um, uh, you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, coats and hats and things. Notice the bookshelves everywhere. And it's very untidy, right? Um, Tuckborough may be old money, but it's not all prim and proper, right? It's, uh, uh, it's kind of a mess, really. Um, and I love the, like, the old chests kind of sitting around. And look at the grand internal doorways. I don't know what's through these. But I'm really interested by the internal doors. Um, we don't see those kinds. Of, we see round doorways like this in a lot of Hobbit dwellings. We don't see many internal doors like this. Uh, huge round Hobbit doors um, that look like the outside of, uh, of most other holes. Um, here, of course, is a friend, Adelard Took. Anybody remember who Adelard Took is? What's he famous for? We know him. Right, Paladin Took hasn't been uh, named yet, but Adelard Took has has uh, has has been in the book. Who is he? No, he's not the one who dances on the table. Yeah, he's one of the people that Bilbo gives a a present to, right? Um, he's one of the he's one of the gag gifts. Let me let me let me read his passage here. 
Okay, right. We've got the... Here he is. For Adelard took for his very own from Bilbo on an umbrella. Adelard had carried off many unlabeled ones, right? Uh, he's the umbrella thief, is Adelard. Um, exactly. The one mentioned stealing umbrellas and who doesn't return them. And, again, I love the way that... I mean, Adelard, you know, he's not the boss here, right? He's not in charge, of uh, of the, the great smiles, but I love the fact that the kind of absent-mindedness that's ascribed to Adelard took the sort of carelessness uh, with other people's property, right? Is um, it seems to be reflected in the overall, I won't say slovenliness, but you know, kind of untidiness. Let's uh, go, this is the one room that we are allowed to go in here, uh, and it's uh, the library. Which you can only tell because they tell you. Otherwise, it uh, looks like the rest of the room. There are books everywhere. I, I'm fascinated by how bookish the Tooks are depicted as being, again, untidy, but um, but very bookish. There are bookcases everywhere, books in piles in the middle of the floor, books standing on little tables, um, and not just, you know, kind of lying around, but books like that book propped open, right? Um you know they're all very active. They're all very active readers. The Tooks, apparently, a uh, a comfy bench with throw pillows, right, for reading on. Um, and it looks like this is really that kind of library, right? This is not a library in the sense of this is where all the books are stored. This is a library in the sense of this is like a place where you can go to sit down to read. Benches here, right? Um, there's um, between Adelard and the librarian here. Um, there's a, a fun set of quests that you get uh, at low level to hear, hear more, uh, uh, more like uh, love seats uh, for, for, for reading, right? Um, where they believe the library is being haunted by the ghost of the old Took. Um, that was one thing that I wish that we had. Um, if I have one regret from Great Smiles, it's that we don't get the old room, right? In the two towers, when they're in Fangorn, uh, Pippin describes the old room uh, in Tuck in Great Smiles, um, which is uh, um, the the old Took's old room, which has been left exactly as he left it. Maybe that's supposed to be the library, right? Um, and it does look old, but it it looks. I mean, maybe it was been left exactly how the old Took left it, but it doesn't stand out. I mean. Maybe it's, perhaps they're trying to imply that the old Took was really untidy with his books, and so the fact that there are books lying all over the place is a, is a testimony to the fact that, um, that he, uh, um, uh, is, you know, that, that, that the room was left just as he, uh, um, just as he left it. Um, but I don't think so, because again, it's, um... The, the whole rest of the place is like that, right? It fits, whereas Pippin was saying that old room was something that really stands out. Uh, you know, it's like a little museum, practically, for uh, uh, for the old Took. And I wish they had that. I don't I don't see that anywhere. I don't think that's what... Maybe that's what... No, I can't imagine that's what this is meant to be, this little seating area that, that where Thane Paladin is. I mean, there's a fire... Nice rug, nice non-evil piece of upholstery. That upholstery doesn't look evil at all, even when there's a saber-toothed cat on it. So, um, 
So yeah, that 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 can't be it. So I do wish we could see the old room, see the old Tux old room. That would be uh, the main thing I would want to add. But let's um, let's head back out. So okay, so that was great smiles. Um. Oh wait, there was a map on the floor, Grim. I did miss that. Hang on, I want to I want to see that. I missed the map. Hang on, map on the floor. I want to see the map on the floor. Where was the map on the floor? Which map is it? I'm now curious. So wait. Where's the map on the floor? Is it in the library? I missed it. I'm looking on the floor now. Oh, over there. Okay. Let's see. Oh, nice! It's the whole Middle Earth map, yeah. Of course, everyone's standing on it now, but yeah! Oh, neat! Oh, that's cool that the Tooks have the Middle Earth map, right? That makes sense that they would have that that a map like that would be lying around in uh, in the Great Smiles, knowing that the Tooks are adventurous, right? You know, like you can one can imagine that one of those Tooks that vanished, right, under suspicious circumstances when Gandalf took them away, um, uh, that that Took was uh, you know that some Took in in history has been given one of these maps of Middle Earth. The idea that in their adventurousness the Tooks are sort of in contact with the wider world that most hobbits are not. I like that touch. That's really great. I hadn't noticed that. Thanks, Grim, for pointing that out. Um, all right, so let's head. Let's see which way do I want to go. Um, not this way. I want to head back south. Let's head back to the road. Back south. Okay, I did it again. Getting my directions reversed. Back north. Good grief. All right. Across this little bridge. That's a little. I love the signposts at the center of town. All right. That's the stock road. This way to Hobbiton. There's a lot of again a lot of the quests that you get in the Shire are very sort of domestic or at least kind of. Uh, Agrarian, right? Like uh, we just passed the Tookland farmer who, uh, you know, who has having a bunch of trouble with his various livestock that you have to help him with. All right, so let's head back out this way. We will pass by some familiar landmarks here. There's Bywater, of course, and the Green Dragon. Here's the Three Farthing Stone, which they make huge in the game. This is the Three Farthing Stone, the center of the Shire. There's the Cotton's House up the hill, of course, as we saw before. And there's those uh, blue-collar brick houses here in in, uh, in Bywater. We're going to be passing by Frogmorton, which is where we left the road before, descending down into the Frogmoors. Talking about Lobelia the Toad. And uh, passing by, though not visiting, the Floating Log, the tavern in Frogmorton. This time, let's carry on down the road. We'll pass by Budgeford. Of course, we went overland through the Frogmoors to Budgeford last time. There's Budgeford by its ford, of course. Uh, There's another mill down here, right? Sandyman does not have a shire-wide monopoly, just a Hobbiton monopoly. Okay. This is uh, the Green Hill Country. Lots of farmland. Now, here's one of the things that I want to look at. 
Look up ahead here. Look up on the hill. And we have these ruinous pillars sitting randomly up there. And when we keep heading towards the river, there's another one. Look at that tower. Now there's no reference to this or to anything like this in the book. This is a pure extrapolation by the Lotro folks. But I think it's a really fascinating one. This is the Stock Tower, as it's called in the Shire. And you notice, how is it what is it decorated with? Right? Those of you who watch my Grifflet stream will be well familiar with this, as Grifflet has spent a great deal of time on this sort of thing. Um, but you notice it's decorated with seven-pointed stars. Right? These seven-pointed stars all over the place, these clusters of stars. That's the Star of Numenor, the Star of Westerness, um, on those ruins. This is an Arnorian tower. And, of course, the Shire was a part of the larger kingdom of Arnor, we know. And again, there's no reference in the book to anything like that. This is one of those things that the Lotro folks have done, uh, in, in, which I think is really neat in the kind of world-building that they do, because, of course, we know that the kingdom of Arnor stretched from, you know, around here, Breeland and the Lone Lands, right? out through the Trollshaws the, the, at, the high, at the end of the heyday of the Kingdom of Arnor, right? Through the North Downs, out towards Aaron, and out at least through Evendim, right? Up away by Dead Men's Dyke. As uh, Butterbur would say, this whole area was the Kingdom of Arnor, um, so there should be Arnorian ruins, right? The Shire might not have been a really important part of... Uh, uh, of the Kingdom of Arnor, but it was within the Kingdom of Arnor. We don't see a lot of ruins here, but we do see some ruins, and this makes sense. So this is what apparently was a watchtower right next to the river, because of course the river, the Baranduin, which the hobbits call the Brandywine, is an important river. Again, if we look at the map, uh, we look at the bigger map, this is the Baranduin River, right? Which goes from Lake Evendim all the way down to the sea. So if you wanted to say reach Anuminus, the city of the kings, um, by water, right? You could do that, and you would come right past here, and anyone invading by sea would have to come right past here. So it makes all kinds of sense for the Numenorians to build what was probably a watchtower here, right? Um, and all that's left is this. So this tower in this spot is still left, and again, we don't see much. Look over there. Look on the other side, right? There's another one. So you can see they're sort of dotting either side of the river all the way up, so there's this continuous network of towers, which suggests they could even potentially have been communication towers, kind of like the Beacons of Gondor. Not exactly like it. But presumably, with the towers that far, messages could be conveyed, um, you know, through lights and things uh, from here to there. Um, Enabling so it maybe maybe this was an old Arnorian communication system even not just a set of watchtowers I don't know 
Um, notice we can see another thing over here. There's another Arnorian ruin. That's uh, that's Brandy Hall, by the way. There's Buckland over there. We'll get to Buckland later on. Um, yeah, so, good, yeah, you guys were just pointing out the one you can see on the other side, and Grimm was just suggesting they could be signal towers, exactly. This seems to be a more recreational uh, structure over here, right? Not a tower. Um, this kind of colonnade over here. But, um, uh, anyway, so, I, re I'm, I, I really love sort of trying to reconstruct the... Uh, um, uh, to reconstruct the... Oh, I lost my horse there in the river. Just like Boromir lost my horse at Tharbad, or the Stockbrook. Um, so yeah, I, I, as I say, I, I love the kind of historical reconstruction that they do. They're very thoughtful about this kind of thing. And here we come into the middle of stock. I'm going to introduce myself to, myself to the stable master on principle. Is there something I can do for you? Just saying hi, man. You're good. Um, and, of course, we have... Stock is mentioned, of course, in the book, as we'll see. It will come across references to Stock. Um, but this, of course, is the most famous thing in Stock. Uh, that is the Golden Perch, right? The Golden Perch, which is the pub here in Stock. The Brandywine Bridge is just around the corner. We'll get to the Brandywine Bridge. But I think we might as well end our field trip here today uh, in uh, in the Golden Perch because the rumor is that this is the best beer in the East Farthing here so uh, uh, I think uh, this is uh, this this looks like a pretty good place to end um, so thanks everybody for joining me we can all have a pint here in the uh, in the Golden Perch and um, I, uh, I appreciate your joining me here for our field trip and our class as always next week we will um, uh, we will go to um, well we'll see where we're going to travel I, I have um, a couple thoughts about that but um, uh, next week we are on Laurelin the Laurelin server and uh, this is really important we're doing a Europe friendly time again we're having our second Europe friendly class um uh, uh, next week, so we're going to be at 3 p.m. in the afternoon again next week. Then we're going to be in the evening time for several weeks in a row after that. Um, but um, but yeah, we can um, uh, we can uh, we can meet then 3 o'clock, and we're going to be on the Laurelin server. My first visit to the Laurelin server, uh, so that's uh, very exciting. So anyway, I'm uh, uh, I am. Glad that you guys could join me next week, Tuesday, next Tuesday, the 21st of February, 3 p.m. on Laurelin. Uh, and we're going to see if we can finish Chapter 2. Our aggressive completion of Chapter 2 in only five weeks. We'll see what we can do. But thanks, everybody, for joining us, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.